When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the podcast where every week we have on one of our favorite comedians to talk about one of their favorite things and we trace its history to find out exactly where it all went off the rails. I'm Winsler Powers. I'm joined as always by my co-host Andrew Nadeau. Andrew, how you doing buddy? I'm doing so good. This one was so fun. We had Dia Basrai on to talk about the history of rock climbing and I got to do one of my favorite things which was dig into biology and evolution for how we got here just going back a mere six million years just a few six million that <laughs> but this was so fun dia is absolutely killing it in chicago we had him on spitfire recently he's a contributor for the onion he's going to be out in san diego for a month doing shows so if you're there go check him out he's just so incredibly hilarious the first time i saw him i went to go meet him and then book him and now I, i'm so glad that we could have him on this show he did a, an amazing job this was such a fun episode oh i had such a great time with this one it was a lot of fun it was great having him on i'm interested in the topic just from an outsider's perspective so it was really cool to like hear his lived in experience with everything it's great I love this episode those are always my favorite when we have a really cool history and then someone that actually knows what the experience is to share with us so guys we had a lot of fun we hope you will too let's get into it let's go Dia Basra, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Absolutely. So you've been playing all over Chicago. We had you on Spitfire recently where you had a fantastic set. Thank you. I know you're a contributor for The Onion. You're heading out to San Diego to headline some shows, right? Yeah, that's where I started. I have like some a new like 40 minutes I'm trying to do. So just trying to run it. Oh, 40 minutes. That's awesome. Thanks. Yeah, I really like the longer sets, which is tough to do in the city. So trying to flex the time a little bit. Great. So going to San Diego, that'll be fantastic. I know we don't have exact dates yet, but hopefully will be up by the time we promo this and we can include some plugs there because that should be a hell of a show. Yeah, man, really excited for it. And excited to be in San Diego for the winter. Absolutely. Oh, are you that, there that long? Yeah, I'm going back to California for about a month for the holidays. And also I was born in California, so avoiding a little bit of the worst of Chicago winter. Yeah, absolutely. That's never been my problem with Chicago is like winter in like the season of Christmas and everything where they make the whole city like magical. I can deal with it then. It's <laughs> right like in January where they take down all those lights and they're just like now you have to be miserable without this joy we put up everywhere for like the next four months yeah yeah, yeah. and it's going to last till may because fuck you yeah they definitely need like post-christmas movies yeah it's all just based on christmas movies they need a movie that's set on january 17th when everyone's back in work right and the relationship they made in the last movie's falling apart it's super depressing because now's the time where you can finally break up with the person you've been wanting to dump but couldn't because it was too mean on the holidays <laughs> so this is an untapped market i feel like for a, a january 17th 17th movie series. And so you had a, a fun topic for us today, too. What did you want to talk about? I want to talk about rock climbing. Yes, something you actually do. Yeah, I started climbing when I was in college. And I mean, I never worked out before. So I was, I mean, I don't work out a ton now. <laughs> but this is my, my my first real sport. And I got like super into it in college. And I, I still climb pretty actively. But I definitely started climbing enough where you kind of notice. Yeah, a little about the culture and the, how the culture changes. And uh, I, st- I still climb all the time. And I still love it. So Chicago 
notoriously flat. Where are you climbing here? I guess on the regular, I mean, I've been a little injured, but there's, I have a gym membership. That's a good one. But also in Devil's Lake in Wisconsin, there's great bouldering and also rope climbing out there. And definitely everything's mildly inconvenient. It's a drive, but also the Red River Gorge in Kentucky is sort of like a mecca of what's called sport climbing. So I haven't been out there yet, but that's on the plans. So I was out in San Francisco a few weeks ago and forgot that like hills were that big of a thing. Like we went, <laughs> went up into the woods and we just went like hiking. There was not much that should have been difficult. But after Chicago, where all of your walking is flat, trying to just make it up the steep parts of this hill were like my legs didn't know this was a thing they were supposed to know how to do. Yeah. You forget about gravity here. Right. Like straight <laughs> up. <laughs> So right, because when you get these steep points and, and you're in this awkward position, again, guys, this is basically walking. I can't overstate how easy this should have been if you're used to hills. It sounds like you're the first guy who ever discovered a hill and coming back to the tribe to describe it. Yeah. It's, like, it's suddenly really hard walking. Andrew, Andrew, just so you're aware, he's talking about climbing rocks and you're talking about a slight incline. Just a mild incline. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> the point of this here was the Chicago flatness. And I thought there's a way to make myself look worse in this story. So let's dig in deep. <laughs> I gotta say, you're firing on all cylinders if you're just like, I think I found a way to make the audience know that I do not rock climb. Yeah. I <laughs> Because this was was one of the things where it was like, yeah, it was very fun, remarkably easy for anyone else. But the actual rock climbing, obviously, we do have a lot of gyms here now that have that because this isn't something you can get here. And I know those have developed, you know, reasonably well. I know they're not an alternative for being out in nature with the climbing, but it's a good practice spot. No, they're massive now. Massive. I mean, Chicago is just opening like two new gyms. There's already like three different companies that have gyms and they have multiple gyms in the city. It's like a huge industry now. It's like blown up across the United States. And especially for places like here that have a winter where it's like you still want to go, but you need to have that human surviving war. Also can't be like super slippery. You have to be able to hold on to things. Has to be able to feel your fingers. Yeah. <laughs> a big part of rock climbing. Yeah. No, it's important. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was something that's always fascinating, something that most kids were big climbers. This was more like how I spent all of my free time. My parents had an issue where I keep finding more and more creative ways to get onto the roof, which was a the thing they just had to deal with when I was four. <laughs> Where they would go outside. It was just like, okay, well, Andrew's on the roof again. I guess we have to move that tree. I don't know. We don't know how he's doing it. <laughs> so this was always something I enjoyed and was something that I'd definitely be interested in trying again in adulthood, I think around it. Like, you know, actually it was when I got sick that I really had to stop that. But no, fantastic. And watching the details of it. And now obviously with the speed climbing event in the Olympics, it's getting some of the recognition that it should. Yeah. I mean, I, as a kid was like climbing counters all the time. Like a lot of the tendies get on top of my kitchen counter is essentially what I'm trying to do nowadays. Like, as a kid, you have the technique so down. You have the perfect body weight. And you just love climbing as a kid. And I think like, there's a reason why like it becomes so popular. There's something kind of childlike about paying $80 a month for gym membership. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right, too. And also, you've got that increased flexibility there that's so helpful. So, I mean, as, as long as we're talking onto the nature of this in humans, we got some deep history on this one that we should start getting into. Because it was hard for me to pinpoint an origin of rock climbing because it has always been a part of the human experience. So I wanted to see how that developed, which brings us back six million years ago when the Indian and Asian tectonic plates collided and created the Tibetan Plateau. I'm going to be honest. I'm not even mad you went this far back because we're doing rock climbing and how could you not? It's 
it's like, yeah, like, honestly, I feel proud of myself for not going back to the history of rocks. This was comparatively <laughs> relatively recent. So this had this huge impact on the environment. This new higher plateau heated up so much that it created global convection winds. The moisture from the Indian Ocean that had originally made eastern Africa a dense forest was now being pulled towards Tibet. And at the same time, a rift valley formed over a line of softer magma from Ethiopia to South Africa. So this forced mountains and cliffs upwards, including Mount Kenya, Kilimanjaro, and Ruwenzori. So this essentially formed a wall keeping moisture from the Indian Ocean from reaching inland. And this wall also formed the dividing line between primates like gorillas, chimpanzees, and our earliest ancestors, hominins. So 4.4 million years ago, the earliest known hominin, Artipithecus ramidus, split from apes. And then it's almost 2 million years later, we have the first fossil evidence of the genus Homo. That earliest known hominin did us all dirty, huh? That <laughs> he, he caused all the problems. I also gotta say, we named him. He did not, like, we just went back and was like, that's Artipithecus. This, whatever his name was. Yeah. <laughs> We're just like, that's your name. Just choosing a name, there's no way he could have pronounced. It's probably Dave or something. Yeah. <laughs> that's a much more pronounceable name for apes. Especially for like the first guy. The first guy didn't have a fancy name. <laughs> that was Gug. He's just super chill. The kind of guy you want to have a beer with <laughs> when that exists. I hate that guy. Because yeah. like, he wasn't being all apes and then sometimes wants to split from being an ape. Just be an ape, dude. Just be normal. <laughs> I, I don't care that you have this slightly big brain. Right. It's like that guy in like elementary school who has like the newest Pokemon card. It's that was basically it where he's got to show it off and it's like, you know what, guys, we don't need your shiny card. We're all happy here without the foil Charizard. I don't know if any of those are correct terms. When do you have Pokemon card knowledge here? Is that were all those things? Uh, yeah, that was actually pretty accurate. All so right. good job you. on you for that. He, he was essentially that guy that was just like, I'm never coming back to this town. Fuck this place. And everyone who's from the town is like, fuck you, man. None of us want you here. We're going to keep being gorillas yeah and you're going to somehow get anxiety yeah. like sure have fun evolution is driven by incredibly annoying members of the species like the most yeah. annoying member is pretty much what darwin found they, that's how the galapagos is it's the most annoying species in, in one place everyone who's too big of a douche to fit in with the rest of society like i'm gonna go do my own thing and like <laughs> somehow you like you know they use their parents money to get there so yeah this is where we're starting so let's go back to like two million years ago when we have the genus homo arise and this impact impact on the environment from all of these effects forced us down from the trees to find alternative food sources. And we discussed this a bit in our running episode, but we discuss obviously the, how we developed running from this. And that is normally what's discussed in this stage where we get to the plains and start running. But we didn't arrive on a flat savanna. It was a complex landscape of rocks and cliffs and hills. Geologists say the topography was more comparable to the rock climbing areas of Snowdonia and Wales. Wow, geologists really made a great analogy that we all can understand and visualize. <laughs> I wanted something that, that our listeners could Google was, was what I was going for. I looked at pictures. It's beautiful, by the way. I want to go there now. But that compared to something. This is what it most likely was at the time. And in fact, the evidence of human fossils is largely in rocky, complex geographical areas. So anthropologist Isabel Winder, professor at Bangor University in Wales, has shown how early adaptations that separated hominins from panins, which are the monkeys, chimps, and apes, can easily be explained by climbing behavior. And this was a pretty revolutionary thought, too, as it developed, because these include a more upright stance, a shortening of the upper limbs, adaptations that had to compromise between flexibility and grasping ability, and features entailing rigidity and leverage during movement on even surfaces. And if you extend your arms, your hand out in front of you, and turn it left to right, I'm doing it here for the camera, even though this is an audio form and no one will see this, most people can turn it 180 degrees. I'm going to 
gonna be honest, Andrew, I think you only did that because I'm in a brace right now and I can't do it. And you're like, you're less than a person right now. <laughs> you have two hands. You could have done the other hand. I did happen to use the hand that matches your brace one, even though I'm right-handed, that's my left. <laughs> but yeah, you know, this is believed to be a feature that evolved successfully, specifically due to climbing. Populations that continued to climb developed further attributes. So this is maybe development formed due to activity after birth rather than evolution. The Twa people are largely uh, hunter-gatherer people in Uganda scale trees for resources and they were originally a group of interest because they're also a pygmy people but researchers saw they could climb trees with their feet at a 45 degree angle from their shins and most humans couldn't bend past 15 or 20 without our ankles rupturing so the shift has become a focus of interest and despite the bend being at their ankle they studied and found that their ankles were identical to ours their calf muscles have unusually long fibers much longer than the bakiga who are neighboring farmers but don't climb trees the same difference was found in the Philippines the Agta hunter gather had much longer fibers than the bonobo farmers. And though this climbing was obviously tree-based, going back to early humans, when we first began migrating, we didn't take the flattest routes. We followed lines with topography similar to the Rift Valley, again, eminently Googleable. This all makes sense because like, so everyone else has uh, calf muscles that are like really long and, and strong and mine are essentially just a toothpick, like rigid, short, and easily breakable. Right. So there is, what had been studied here was whether or not this was something that had developed over them just just climbing since birth, essentially. That whether this might not be evolutionary, but rather something they're able to develop from their lifestyle. But it's been remarkably successful and watching them do this and seeing this is not something we can do at all is, is incredible. It's kind of funny how like at the gym, there's like very specific traits that would make you a good climber that people would agree. Like your ape index is essentially your wingspan and people would agree that that's like universally good. So like it's kind of like the most eugenicsy part of rock climbing. Right. People really <laughs> talk about people's physical attributes at the same level of scientific precision but it's to their face. They're just like, yeah, you have a negative three ape index. You shouldn't be here. <laughs> So what does negative three mean? Is this relative to your height then? Exactly. So you're generally your wingspan's around your height and negative is how many inches less than it. So I'm five, five, but I'm plus two, which is pretty not so bad rock climbing stats. So is that inch base then? So two inches longer? Right. Exactly. Okay. So yeah, I remember that was just when I was younger, cause I'm like a plus four. You should climb. And yeah, I'm, I'm just absolutely wasting that. I'm just reaching shit on shelves. I could be doing so much more with this, <laughs> but yeah, this is definitely something where there's a natural physical ability that's kind into here as well as strategy and training. And this was a part of the life because going back to the migration path, which it was challenging, obviously, to go over these rocky, rough areas, but wasn't necessarily unreasonable because humans were never really particularly well defended by our biology. We don't have sharp teeth and claws or excessive speed, especially before we became a running population on the open plains, we would just become targets. And Homo nelidia, a species that lived about 250,000 years ago, left behind the earliest existing fossil evidence of rock climbing skills. What does that mean? means like they have like carabiners in their <laughs> fossils. So what this was was very interesting because when we found the evidence, a lot of anthropologists have said there has to be some other way they could have gotten here because this is insane that they would do this despite no evidence. But what this was, was in the Malmani Dolomites of South Africa for tens of thousands of years, Homo Nelidi brought their dead to the Rising Star Cave. And they would have had to climb down this 35 meters below the surface through this narrow horizontal passage, a 20 meter high ridge, a narrow horizontal section that led to a technical downclimb of a 15 meter chimney and they would have to do this while carrying a body and then of course make the trip back up afterwards. So 
so yeah, there was no evidence of anything else, but anthropologists were just like, this is insane. How could they be doing this? It wasn't until 2015 when they found the second cave with fossils just 80 meters away that they were able to confirm that clearly this was a deliberate choice. This was part of their burial ritual. I would love that if you were like, there was a second cave and it had a staircase in it. Yeah. <laughs> and they were just chilling and walking down. They had a dumb waiter. It was incredible. Yeah. <laughs> this is probably how like burying the dead got invented. They're like, that guy sucks. I am not carrying that guy up a 35 meter chimney. <laughs> just throw him in the ground next to us. <laughs> that guy does not deserve this at all. I mean, that is an insane commitment too. Like I would feel guilty about dying if I knew someone had to do that after I died. Like I would immediately try to lose weight before dying. Yeah, I would climb to the cave myself to die. Just like, I'll be here. Right. <laughs> I'm not going to do this anyway. This is terrible. Yeah, just kick me. Just kick me. When my heart stops, <laughs> just kick me into the hole. It'll be fine. I'll figure it out. But realistically, this was no more challenging than carrying the game or foraged food over steep terrain that they would have to do regularly. It's just a very hard thing for us to imagine. But by 37,000 years ago, modern humans had migrated through Eurasia. Evidence of early human technical climbing and caves and on cliffs spread from Africa to France to China and Indonesia. In fact, the first portrayals of rope used for climbing date back to 45,000 year old cave art in the uh, Fisher Orni in Exteberia Cocoria in Spain is this 14 meter crack. Most climbers wouldn't even attempt without a rope, but partway down, early climbers stopped to paint a picture of prey, which was just insane and incredible. <laughs> what a move to stop halfway to draw a picture of the thing you're about to kill. That- <laughs> what a beautiful serial killer move that is that they're just like, hold on, I'll paint you and then fucking them up. This is also definitely the perfect modern tinder bio this guy's a rock climber and a painter <laughs> this thing i did while climbing just a gym looking for my pam they're <laughs> <laughs> no, just like 100 holding a picture of a fish while he's wearing a backwards hat well the fish is what he's going after yeah <laughs> so i want to get ahead a little bit because we've got a, a modern history too that's interesting but climbing developed all over the world with climbing competitions in easter island Incan alpinist set a record an altitude record in the 15th century that wouldn't be equaled by europeans for 400 years there were anasazi rock climbers of the American Southwest and the Dogon climbers of Africa, it grew naturally long before it became an activity in Western society, but which does bring us to how it developed into a sport, because rock climbing was a necessary component of Victorian mountaineering in the Alps, but there were examples before that. It's again worth noting that others did this first, then Europe figured it out, was like, we invented a thing, but again, the, the Incas were known to have climbed at least 6,739 meters in the Andes around the late 15th and early 16th century. They were born, though, at like 5,500 meters, so it's not that impressive. <laughs> pretty far <laughs> the starting point was higher <laughs> look I don't want to give the Incas too much credit that's all that, that, yeah so generally that's what's <laughs> talked about with the Incas was how easy they've had it <laughs> But around the same time in Europe, we had Charles VIII of France, and not too far before this mountain climbing was either practical or symbolic, usually undertaken for economical, political, or religious reasons, or very often, you know, war. But Charles saw Montaguil and thought it was beautiful, and there were local legends surrounding it, including angels circling its peak, and worth noting that it was known as Mont Inaccessible. Ooh, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> this was just understood, like, nobody can do this. So Charles was immediately like, I would love credit for climbing this, so I am going to make somebody else do it. And amazingly, he received credit for climbing it for that. So he had his chamberlain and military engineer, Antoine de Ville, ascend it with 10 other climbers, including a stonemason, carpenter, and priests, and they used ropes and siege ladders, and then they camped on the summit for about a week afterwards. You don't send priests unless you're certain that most of those people will die. The priest was a weird choice, yeah. No, they sent a priest to give people their last rites before they died to make sure they got to 
heaven. Like, that's the only reason to send a priest on a dangerous mission to just be like, here's this guy. And they're like, you said we're going to make it back. Yeah, you'll make it back. But just in case. So why does that carpenter keep making coffins on the way here? That's not. (laughs) It was it was weird because like the the engineer like made a lot of sense. But everyone else was like, but it's not like like, oh, we have all these climbers to choose from. This is not a thing that exists here. So they were like, yeah, maybe the priest is going to be good at this. This is an engineer and then a setup for a bad bar joke. They're like, so a stonemason, a carpenter and a priest. This is funny, right? This is a funny yeah. group of people. It sounds like when you're playing like a fantasy MMORPG too long, so you start out as a carpenter and you're like, I'm just going to pick up all the other skills as well. Yeah. <laughs> this this was a bad start. I don't want to rewrite, so I'm just going <laughs> to I'm just going to add everything else in and just like see if I can mix it. Just sending every job to be like, are you guys good at this? What yeah. skills translate? <laughs> we don't know. So <laughs> they do reach the top. They reported seeing no angels, but a charming meadow covered with flowers was what they described. But no one else successfully climbed to the summit until 1834. So, I mean, this was clearly a hard climb and the Age of Enlightenment and the Romantic Era saw this big shift in attitudes towards high mountains because in 1757, the Swiss scientist Horace Benedict de Saussure made the first of several unsuccessful attempts to climb Mont Blanc in France and he then offered a reward to anyone who could do it, which wasn't claimed until uh, 1786 by Jacques Beaumont and Michel Gabriel Picard. And this is generally considered a pivotal moment in the history of mountaineering, perhaps more symbolic than literal, but marking the birth of the sport. By the early 19th century, many of the Alpine peaks have been reached. We have Gloss Glockner in 1800, Ortler in 1804, Breithorn in 1813. In 1808, Marie Paradis became the first woman to climb Mont Blanc. And by the 19th century, much of the world had been well mapped too, but mountains were still relatively un. Could you imagine being a woman who climbed a mountain in a time where you're not allowed to wear pants? It was absolutely (laughs) insane. I always like finding like the evidence of the first woman to accomplish something because it is so much sooner than you think, considering there is no way they would have been allowed to train or do anything in public or have any of access to to anything that anyone else that has done it had. And it's always so much earlier than you think, where it's just one woman who's like, I'm just I'm just going to do it anyway. And, (laughs) And somehow does it. But it was this combination of the scientific pursuit and the desire to conquer the natural world that's, you know, forever growing, but especially prevalent in this time. And it was led to what was called the golden age of alpinism. And this starting with Alfred Will's climb of the Wetterhorn in 1854. It's crazy that the desire to conquer has led to a lot of golden ages, huh? It's It's the main driver behind golden ages. It is. And typically after like something horrific for a good while. And then it's like, guys, we got the golden age now. (laughs) Uh, But it it was like this 11 year period with Alfred Will's climbing the Wetterhorn in 1854 and then ending with Edward Wimper's ascent of the Matterhorn in 1865. And in between that, the Alpine Club formed in London in 1857, and British climbers were dominating the scene, but they were doing so using Swiss and French guides. So again, just like these people that can do it with their eyes closed are not getting the credit for the people that are leading up the mountain. I mean, that's pretty much how people climb Everest today, right? No, totally. Oh yeah, that's still the standard practice. Yeah. (laughs) Not that it was like easy, but you also do have people who are doing it all the time just because that's their job now. It'd be like if you added me to like the 98 bowls. It's just like, okay, he didn't play a minute. He's on the bench. Like none of the players acknowledge his existence, but I got that ring, baby. Yeah. (laughs) 
pretty much just how the shirt puts like a valet hugger there at climbers it's like what is the worst looking american like the person in no shape at all to make it up and if they got that guy up then they're like the best sherpa yeah so they don't ever look at their own abilities they just they point to some white guy that would make so much sense <laughs> just anytime you see a picture of climbers just look in the background for the guys that actually got them up the mountain oh yeah because well, it's insane you've got people who are taking photos at a point where other people just live that's their home and people taking pictures they're like i can't believe i made it this high and it was like well there's just like a guy behind them who's just out like doing his laundry yeah whenever like they have those photos of like those dead guys on everest there's also a sherpa who definitely got fired that's like the other bad story behind that (laughs) yeah he's just like grasping his head just like no (laughs) they said this was my third strike I, I, I love that imagery. I was just like, yeah, that, that's what happens after that. What happens if like your entire team dies? Like who is taking the fall for that? You just come down and you're just like, woof. Yeah. Uh, I goofed. I'm going to be honest. I goofed. Well, and despite the fact that they were not the <laughs> the dominating force here, the actual climbers, there was still this race to claim the first ascent. And during this time period, it was still often a scientific pursuit. More often than not, climbers were carrying with them instruments for scientific observation. But then the Alps were swarmed with climbers looking to be the first on any mountain they could. And by the end of the era, sportsmen came to dominate the scene over researchers. That They began spreading out across the rest of the world, culminating with Sir Edmund Hillary climbing Everest in 1953, which is about when you start to see the explosion in rock climbing too, rather than mountaineering. Which I realize I'm just getting into the crux of the topic here, but it was a very cool history. No, I'm super into it. I've so far enjoyed this ride. Yeah. You've been a great Sherpa on my journey through the history. <laughs> of rock climbing so far. I've been saying Sherpa a bunch. It definitely sounds one, like one of those words that I absolutely cannot say in 20 years. So. That, I was seeing that like <laughs> when said it is like, oh, well, that sounded fine when it was uh, describing a person who does that for a career. But is this a is, <laughs> is this appropriation now? I'm going to be honest, Andrew. When you look like I do, a lot of words have that effect. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're going to assume that's fine. But jumping forward to rock climbing, because actual rock climbing is a sport. It did emerge in the late 1800s in several places in Europe because mountaineers wanted to train and practice specific ascension techniques without having to go all the way up a peak to do so. So they started climbing cliffs and rocks closer where they lived, which led to rock climbing being developed as a separate discipline. Because this wasn't a shift in just location, but a shift in intent. Obviously, you were trying to get to the top, but climbing wasn't necessarily about reaching the peak, but about the climb itself was more significant part of it. But that took a little time to evolve in a pure form. In the beginning, methods were still similar to the way mountaineers tackled peaks using what are now called aid climbing techniques, where any method was fair game as long as you reach the top, and this would include chiseling holes into flat sections and using ladders and other gear to climb as much as they could. And there wasn't a specific person or origin to the first rock climbs developed out of mountaineering, but Walter Perry Haskett Smith's free soloing the first ascent of the Napes Needle in 1886 has been known as the birth of rock climbing in England as it brought attention to his and others climbing solo attempts. And W.P. Haskett Smith is known as the father of rock climbing in the British Isles because of this. Okay, question. Just for my own clarification, let's pretend I'm dumb for a second, okay? Have you all imagined a world where that's possible? Yeah. (laughs) What is free soloing just so i am aware so free soloing is climbing without ropes and generally it's when you climb something tall as opposed to bouldering which is climbing without ropes but also something where you generally aren't that high so there's aid climbing which is climbing using any method possible including chiseling then there's it's what's called free climbing which is climbing only using your hands and feet and potentially ropes but you're not altering the rock face and you're not using any gear that helps pull you up and there's free soloing which is climbing hands and feet no ropes does that make sense that makes all the sense of the world thank you so much for that 
that. And now I can really picture this in my brain. <laughs> it's like a, a common, like when you're a rock climber, people say Alex Honnold is a big free climber. It's always like the small colloquial error because he's a free soloist. Like there's a lot of free climbers out there. Because you can free climb and use rope, but free soloing is free climbing, but with no rope. Exactly. Exactly. I can be taught. Yeah. <laughs> that was beautifully explained. <laughs> so along with these developments of these terms, we also had various grading systems begin emerging around the world as an attempt to compare routes. And the first system was introduced in 1894 and counted backwards from seven. And that was reversed in 1923 because they had to add a zero and then a double zero rating when climbers pushed past what they previously thought was the hardest route possible that anyone could climb. So they just switched it where seven was the hardest. But there are a number of systems now and, and it varies between country. So Dia, what level are you climbing here normally? Yeah, so I guess I'm mostly Boulder, which is what's called the V system. So usually V0 is sort of the easiest. And then the hardest ever boulder, which has only happened in the last five years, is V17. So I climb around V6 level, which is pretty strong, but definitely like if you climb like V8 and above, you're considered like a quite a strong boulder. All right. That is very helpful. I love number ratings. That's, that makes it so easy for me. <laughs> yeah. That's why people love bouldering so much. It's, it's so granular and you can feel improvement in such like clear ways. Oh, I thought you meant because of all the numbers involved. And I was like, yes, I would absolutely <laughs> go in for that. But no, and I think having that larger scale too, because yeah, you get to see your growth. So what are the limits between something being bouldering and something being rock climbing? So it's all very arbitrary and it's because essentially the main thing is height. So when you boulder, the idea is that if you fall off the top and you land on a pad that you bring, you should be safe. However, if you're not safe, then you should bring a rope and it becomes rope climbing, which has its own sort of grading system. And there's different forms of rope climbing, whether the rope starts at the top and called top roping, or it's lead climbing where there's bolts are in the wall and you need to clip in, or it's traditional climbing where you place your own gear and take it off at the end. But nowadays, like what's called high ball bouldering, which is bouldering really tall things, is really popular. So in Bishop, which is a place in California, there's these massive 25 foot boulders. And then just like a culture there that they're called boulders and not rope climbs. And then you don't climb them at ropes, you climb them with pads. And when you're near the top, you shouldn't fall. You'll, something bad will happen. But it's called bouldering anyway. So it's all kind of, there's a culture to it. Like some places are considered boulders because they're mostly bouldered and places where they did ropes on small things, they're considered rope climbs. It's arbitrary. We're definitely going to get into the, the culture around it too, because that is very significant into how it developed. But also you mentioned the tools used for this because along with the rigs was developed here, rock climbers began to develop specific gear for climbing. Like in 1910, we had Austrian Hans Flechtel. He added an eye bolt to the standard piton, letting climbers clip into them, which is obviously significant for now you have a <laughs> advanced safety method here. Around the same time, Otto Herzog built the first steel carabiner for climbing. It wasn't until 1927 that the rock drill and expansion bolt were invented. And we're going to get into the, some of the issues with that soon too. And then in 1920s, European climbing techniques began to really spread to the U.S. Climbers started forming clubs, just as mountaineers had done. There were competitions, techniques were shared, routes that people thought couldn't be accomplished were now being accomplished. An Italian man, Emilio Camici, is often credited as the father of rock climbing in the modern age due to his inventions and improvements of big wall climbing. He created the first hanging bivouac, improved solid belays and aid ladders. He pioneered the tagline, climbed in the 30s, and unfortunately died from a fall in 1940. But soon after this, the 1950s brought out its own specific style of climbing with bouldering, pioneered by John Gill, he had a gymnastics background that gave him a unique perspective on rock climbing because he would climb seeking out difficult sections rather than looking to avoid them. He introduced gymnastics chalk to the climbing world and encouraged the use of dyno or dynamic moves whenever possible. The 1960s was when climbing culture really solidified the stereotype of rock climbers as dirtbags, uh, which would become a somewhat official term for climbers in the future, really, right? Is that accurate? Totally. People say it very endearingly nowadays. Right. <laughs> yeah. And there was a huge counterculture around it the form too. Lots of climbers would live in Yosemite and they'd spend their days and nights 
climbing, drinking, and doing drugs. Gotta admit, that's a pretty romantic idea. Yeah. In like the true <laughs> sense of the word romance, that sounds very romantic to me. And a lot of these amazing first ascents of Yosemite, which are these incredibly dangerous, like, scary routes, are purported to have been done on acid. And these are <laughs> terrifying. Like, it's not safe. It's extremely technical. But yeah, the place I climbed the most is Joshua Tree, back when I lived in California. And that also, you can sort of imagine, is like half the stuff is done on mushrooms out there. I could definitely see that from everyone I've met who rock climbs and has been to California. That really uh, meshes up. Yeah. There. <laughs> <laughs> right. And yeah, I mean, that absolutely sounds terrifying and I'm, I'm sure I would die. But this this helped break out the stigma that climbing was only for the rich and privileged. You had the groups like the Vulgarians who helped shift the culture of climbing. One of the stories I loved, I think well illustrated in culture from 1977, there was this drug plane coming up from Colombia carrying pot that crashed into a lake in Yosemite. And one of the climbers had a girlfriend who worked on the switchboard and had listened in on a conversation about the plane and what was supposedly in it and what they thought was happening. And she told her boyfriend and due to the remote location, the climbers made it up there first. The nose of the plane was sticking up out of the ice of the lake and they break through and pull out a big bale and it's completely filled with pot. And then they discover there are hundreds of these bales. So the climbers went back up with chainsaws to get through the ice and all of a sudden it was like the gold rush to get these bales. At first it was, you know, just small coming in then everybody. But back at camp, you'd get this smell coming from the tents. Like everyone's used to the smell of pot. This had a unique odor to it. And someone would take a hit and then all of a sudden there would be an explosion. And not deadly, but like singed eyebrows because you're smoking this. That's like drugs 101. Yeah. (laughs) But it turned out the pot had soaked in airplane fuel from the crash. Yeah, my mom used to always say, never accept drugs that was found in a plane crash. I mean, that's that's a a pretty basic rule, guys. Yeah. I try to avoid any to like putting anything in my body that has been found next to a dead body. Like if a dead body is next to it, I don't put it in my body personally. That's just me. (laughs) That's true. There were two people on the plane and they had both died, but this was a lot of drugs. (laughs) So actually a lot of the climbers took what they found and went down to Berkeley in LA and they would come back up to Yosemite with new cars, you know, buying steak dinners with a house, hundred dollar tips. People even built houses with what they made from this plane crash. Well, yeah. Yeah, have you ever tried Crazy Randy's exploding weed? <laughs> but they, they were so efficient at this. Rangers didn't even find out about the plane until all of the drugs were gone. So fantastic. They made good use of that. But there was another shift in the culture around this time is in the first few decades of rock climbing with aid climbing defacing a cliff was pretty standard and you'd hammer in as much protection or aid as you could until you reach the top and then you'd rappel down and pull out your pitons which broke off holds and, and left holes in the rock and because climbing wasn't especially popular they didn't give it much thought, but as it spread, it had to change because Yvonne Chouinard and Royal Robbins were climbers in the 1670s who just completely changed the sport. They saw rock climbing as much of as an art form as an athletic feat and tried to do as much as they could using natural rock features. And that became a core belief of the climbing community as a whole. Like the first cam devices for climbing came out in the 70s, which made it easier to climb a cliff face without leaving anything behind. And companies wholly devoted to climbing started in the same period. They grew along with the sport and really helped shape the industry with the goal of sustainability and these leave no trace ethics. And that perspective of climbing with respect to nature and the feet itself became a staple of not just the activity, but the entire culture. Everything sort of that emerged out of this was really about like, yeah, the climbing is like you're part of nature. It's about enjoying the nature. And it's like this really beautiful thing where safety is a goal, but you essentially just want to be safe without destroying the environment. So essentially one sort of medium is bolting. So when you bolt, you take a drill, you drill into the rock and you put a bolt in there that stays there. And then when 
when someone else climbs it, they can clip a carabiner to it and they put the rope into the carabiner. But a lot of places, like in England, there's almost no bolting allowed. You can only use tams and stuff. It's very traditional. And even in places where there is bolting in the States, there's still this, okay, like we'll bolt, but everything else, like they don't want you to be living tons of gym chalk around. And in general, like not trampling foliage around, making sure like you take paths to these rocks. So there's a lot of times when you like drag all this gear through the forest, you can destroy so much. So yeah, so like um, that's part of like, the ethics behind it is kind of abiding by all these rules. And cams are based on using crevices as your anchor points, right? Exactly. There's something that you put in and it spans and then, then you can clip onto that expanding thing, which sounds not that safe, but when there's cracks, you can imagine it actually gets very secure and then you fall onto those. Okay, I got to say though, so we have this bun sounding sport. It lets you be in nature. It focuses on the beauty of nature. Sometimes you go on an angel hunt with priests. Sometimes you find a plane that's just filled with drugs that you could use to buy a house. This all sounds great. So I guess the point of the show is where did this go wrong? Yeah. And I think the problem really emerged with the gym. So the gym was also sort of a recent invention as like people really try to push themselves on harder and harder routes. And then people were like, is there some way I can train during the off season? So climbing is sort of, it has to be a little cold to climb because then you sweat off the rocks very easily. In fact, like 40 degrees is pretty ideal. You know, it's a bit cold because you have very good friction. So there'd be these points in the summer or in the points of the cold, like when it's snowing where you can climb and eventually the gym emerged where people created these spaces where you can just train hard and get ready for the climbing season. But gyms are really fun. They eventually became popular with like any other sort of gym. Like a lot of people would just climb in gyms. It became very popular. Like in SF, there's tons of these gyms where a lot of software engineers go and a lot of kind of yuppie-ish crowds started going to start climbing. The point of the gym wasn't to train for climbing outside. They kind of enjoyed the gym in itself, which isn't a bad thing. But then when they would start to go outside, which was a very natural thing, you'd climb in the gym all the time, then you'd want to go and try your rock climbing outside. They would go without this real knowledge of the history behind it. And they would kind of climb I mean, started off as this real like counterculture activity where people who didn't really believe in the system would be able to like live outside. Like climbers in Yosemite were like famous for like, they would steal food from the cafeterias. They'd earn a couple bucks doing random things so they wouldn't ever have to be part of society. Then they can climb the rest of the time. And suddenly now you have all these people who are more part of the system than ever. And on weekends, they don't drive out with their expensive vans and they climb. And a lot of times not really care about the ethics behind it. And then go back to their jobs. And a lot of people are just frustrated. It just feels like the exact kind of people they're trying to get away from now are heavily involved in the sport. I think not just heavily involved, but these people that are coming from a place of privilege also feel like they have the right to dominate the scene that other people have worked hard to establish for decades before them. And now it's like, okay, but I paid for my gym membership, so I own nature now. Right. Like uh, this Camp 4 in Yosemite, which is what you're talking about, people would hang out there. It was like this free place to get camp. And back then, you'd have all these hippies living there, and they'd literally live there. And nowadays, if you try to go there, you'd never go to get a spot because pretty much it's just a, a pure crowding thing all these famous crags now literally have lines you'd have to wait for your turn and a lot of the most popular beautiful places have become a bit theme parkish and then there's no difference whether you're just there on like you've been climbing your whole life or you're just some engineer who's there for the weekend you're also taking up a spot which i read the article that you had sent over to about those people that are going out in their vans and are driving past these people in their hundred thousand dollar you know purpose made cars just for this 
one trip out there to the people that have built a culture on roughing it. And it feels like an insult to everything that was established, especially when you see them then get there and not even respect the nature that they're in. No, totally. And like social media too has kind of changed the way like these sprinter vans too. I mean, it's like this whole van life sort of movement, which is definitely tr- connected to parts of the climbing community, has definitely become sort of kind of cool if you're the guy who has a van and goes out on the weekends instead of doing it for the sport itself. But it's like an image sort of thing. The lifestyle. Exactly. Because I mean, I've got a friend who did the van life thing, but actually did it. The van was where he lived. <laughs> you know, that was what he did. He lived his life in the van. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that, it's the name was very apt. And yeah, I mean, that, that was very cool. He, he put it together himself and then just, you know, went out on the road and it was fantastic. But you can also easily find, I guess, the equivalent of glamping, these designer vans that someone else built. So you can now spend $120,000 to go out on a weekend and pretend. It feels very much like the, what was, like the Paris Hilton show, The Simple Life, where it's like, oh, we're going to go pretend to have a real person job that they have to do every day, but complain about how hard it is. And it's going to be a goof. Yeah, living in a van is really easy when you have $100,000 in the bank account, if anything goes wrong. Oh, yeah. It's very <laughs> different when this is all you've got. Right. The van is everything you have because that's what you need. You need a place that's something that gets you there. And which really is an incredible culture around it that they did something that was so both physically and mentally challenging to live this kind of life for just something that they believed in, something that they really enjoyed doing, but also there has to be a level of cause and belief behind it to be able to commit to something so hard. Like, nope, just going to go live in a tent for a while. (laughs) This is going to be my thing. You got to remember, like, yeah, they were all doing that. It was beautiful and it was fun and they were working out their bodies while also having a great refilling of the soul. But none of that was on Instagram. Instagram. So did it even happen, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And there's a gym not too far from me with a very large rock wall. And I have never seen anyone go into it that looks like they're making less than $150,000 a year. Yeah. It's funny how even outdoor companies like Patagonia and like uh, North Face, at some point, were really supposed to be designed for people doing outdoor activities. But if someone does outdoor activities all the time, can you really afford a $300 jacket? It's really become for these people who go to climb in the gym and do all these things and to keep warm on the going in and out of it. But not really so much for being called the North Face, which is literally like the hardest face of a, that's what it's named actually. The North Face is generally the hardest part of a mountain to scale because of like wind and stuff or whatever. I learned today. This is fun. I like our podcast. It's <laughs> a good time. So yeah, I mean, especially to be taking the name from, from these challenges, it feels very appropriation-ish <laughs> that it's like, cool, this is the thing that we've built. Not we, I've had nothing to do with this, that one has built a culture around and then it was just like, okay, but here's a way we can package it to wealthy people who want to pretend they're doing this. The best climbing shoes are like $210 now. And then anyone who like tries to climb harder in the gym, you buy these expensive shoes. Like shoes used to not be such an investment. Shoe price of Louis rose so fast in the last 10 years just because now there's this market that is is so infuriating and i mean it makes perfect sense too of course this is this is how it happened but it's, it's something that I, i've honestly always wanted to do with it has just been a health thing for me that's, that's kept me from being able to pursue it i'm confident i would not be good at it but it was one of those things where every time like i can drive by a normal gym and think i have little to no interest in this but every time there's a rock wall there's a thought of i want to go spend my day on this or rocks i honestly feel that way and the rare occasions that i see mountains uh too where it was like this would be an amazingly fun, incredibly challenging thing to do. But I guess this is the, the main point I want to say is that, I mean, I started a part of this yuppie thing. I was in college. I had a rock climbing 
joined gym in my co- in, in in my college, and that's where I got started. And I wasn't living in Yosemite and had a dad or whatever. The reason why people all people started climbing is climbing is so fun. It's just like genuinely one of the most fun things that like people of all sorts of growing up in different situations, whether rich or poor, just love it like deeply. It's definitely something that like I've always been interested in just watching. Like it used to be like I would go to baseball games. Like I, there was a Triple A baseball team in Memphis, and one of the things like I had no interest in the game, but they had like a children's area that did have a rock climbing area and I would just be like bye and I would just be like scaling that thing like I would just like go up it hit the button get back down climb back up and like that's all I would do for like two hours yeah (laughs) there's something like innate in you that just kind of likes doing it like it's why Andrew ended up on his roof when he was four (laughs) like it's just fun I was on that roof a lot (laughs) honestly I am amazed that I survived that my parents also kept me I feel like that was one of those things where at some point they should have gone to like all right well a psychiatrist needs to fix him because he keeps ending up on the roof and then he just sits on the <laughs> roof. <laughs> That's why like drunk people climb. It's something that you revert to some childlike state and then you just start climbing cars and climbing trees. Like uh, whenever I'm with a drunk friend, they're all just getting on top of things. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why I thought it was so interesting reading through like the evolutionary history of this too, because I think there is a, a level of innateness in it and it's, it's something that we generally think of ourselves as better than evolution. But hearing a story not too long ago about a Weimaraner, a dog bred to be a, a rescue dog. And the person who had this dog, their neighbors got a pool and the Weimaraner could not handle it. Anytime someone was in the pool, it would jump in and save them. And <laughs> this is what it was read to do. This was absolute instinct now was to pull people out of the water the same way that sheepdogs will herd babies. And it's a problem for people that have young children and a sheepdog at the same time. And it, it's, yeah, there, there is a level of instinct that is still relevant to us. And I think the fact that we see that when we have a sense of freedom and feel safe and secure, we can do whatever we want. Yeah, that instinct is to climb shit. We just, we want to get up there. <laughs> no, it's so fun. I cannot stress how much I love it. So we've gotten into the history. We've gotten into the yuppies and everything kind of destroying the spirit of the thing, which brings us to our last section in their defense, where we have to each try to take it some time to defend the thing that we say ruined rock climbing. So who wants to take first crack at it? I was going to say this is also a defense of myself means I'm part of this yuppie movement. And as someone who's reasonably doing fine and also climbing and doing all these things, it's also really a trap of as everything gets more popular. A lot of like the stuff about destroying nature too. Just when you have 10 times the amount of people at a place, it's impossible not to have these issues. But I also think that like, even in that article about the guy who was really annoyed at all these expensive sprint friends, there's also, there's a, there is a sense of curmudgeon stuff to it. That, like it sports change, the people who do them change. And I don't think that like, as much as it's cool, there's nothing like particularly like beautiful about a bunch of potheads <laughs> climbing in Yosemite and stealing food from tourists. Depends on what the potheads look like, I guess, if it's beautiful. Or not. <laughs> exactly. And climbing has been pushed so much since people have taken a more serious outlet to it. And a lot of like kids are like raised in gyms and they're out like just going for the lipids and all these competitions. And people are so much stronger than ever. And clients that people thought were impossible have suddenly like we have new grades all the time. Like things that were thought were impossible, people are climbing now. And that would have been possible without rich parents enrolling their kids in <laughs> gyms at age five. And this is guy is like the next greatest climber ever. And that would never have been possible without people with resources being interested in the sport. That is a fantastic in their defense. 
Yes, I will accept that. When do you have something? Yeah, I got something. So from the very beginning of this becoming a thing that people do competitively or to get their name out there for infamy, for fame, for women in glory, it was originally a thing where a rich guy could say, I'm going to send a priest, a carpenter, a jester, <laughs> and a poet and see which <laughs> of these can climb the mountain and then I'm going to take credit for it. That was how the sport started. And if nothing else, this kind of feels like it's going back to its roots. I think we're getting to the point where we're going more pure than ever before. We perverted it with the drugs and the and the clean living and all that stuff. That wasn't what it was all about. It was about throwing your money at a mountain until it bent to your will. And people are back, baby. They're back. They have the resources. I think we should send more priests. I think we should send more priests up mountains to look for angels and then they're going to say, all we found was a beautiful meadow. And guess what, guys? That was the angels. That was heaven. You found it. Good job. <laughs> a very good point. So in their defense, everything that we create tends to follow the same pattern. Poor people figure out something cool. Rich people steal it and make it far more expensive. And then they can't do it right. So they find a way to make it more accessible and cheaper. And that is my area to shine. That is the only place where I'm going to have a chance to do this is when eventually they make it so easy that there is an elevator up and you just kind of like hold onto a rock along the way. And this is going to be my opportunity to see the Angel Summit, which ultimately just has some flowers. But yeah, eventually it's going to become boring for them because they have exhausted it and it's no longer elite. So prices start going back down. But by now they've already established the paths where less rich people can figure it out. And they made it a bit easier for those of us that want to take part, but are very tired and not super athletic. And you know what? Along the way, there are going to be some fantastic snack stands that you know that's going to happen, that it's it's going to be delicious. And that's ultimately where I know I'm going to check in and have a fantastic time. So yes, they're ruining it right now. But in the future, you're going to be able to get peaches that are so fresh for like $9, but they're going to be worth it. That's my in their defense. Everest base camp peaches. Yeah. It's it's different. I think that about wraps it up. We've got what we loved in the actual experience here, the entire history and how humans evolved to do it, where it went wrong in yuppies being douches. And in their defense, Dia Basrite, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks. This is, this is really fun. And I learned a lot today. It was crazy. I'm so, so glad. Hopefully our listeners did too. And guys, if any of you are in San Diego, Dia is going to have continuous days. He's going to be there for the next month. So please go check out his, his new 40 minutes. Again, we've seen him live. We have it on the show. He is, is so good. So if you're there, don't miss it. Dia, thank you for coming on. Our audience, thank you for listening. If you enjoy this, please subscribe. Give us five stars. It helps out so much. We also have a Patreon down in the show notes that helps us keep the show running. So we're going to be back next week. We hope you'll join us then. When? I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>